If you'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, you may be aware that down in our fellowship hall, there is a nice little dangly thing. I guess it's a banner. It's very cheery, and it reads Titus 2. I'm not sure who's the creator of that. Some creative person made that. Anyway, it's there, and uh, that's because our women's Sunday school class has been in Titus chapter 2. Um, to my regret, I have not had the opportunity to attend that Sunday school class, uh, along with about 50% of you. But um, I am told that the focus of that class is Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, and our focus tonight will be verses 11 through 14. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and it's going to give us uh, some important context. Essentially, the first half, or the first maybe two-thirds of the chapter is instructions for believers that are broken down based on their demographic. The demographic instructions, they call it. Old men, old women, young, uh, young women, young men, and then finally, interestingly, and we'll touch on this, slaves are specifically identified for instruction. So those instructions are what precedes our passage tonight. And our passage tonight begins with the word for. So there's some sort of logical connection between those instructions, which you ladies have been studying in your Sunday school class, and our passage tonight. I want you to be tuned in to that logical connection as we read. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords or what aligns with sound doctrine. So here it is. Here's what aligns with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Sow yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared." bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you've spoken. We need your speech. We are inadequate. We're broken. We're limited in our knowledge. But not only limited, we're twisted. And only your life-giving word can open our eyes to the realities that surround us and can reshape our heart to believe and to love them. So I ask for your help. I ask for your help for me. You know that I, too, 
need this word and I need your reshaping of my own heart and uh, I want to listen to your word even as I speak it. So I pray for your help for all of us and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Um, Christianese is a dialect that's well known in the South. I actually looked it up on Wikipedia. Do you know the word Christianese, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-E-S-E, is actually on Wikipedia? And there is a definition for it on Wikipedia. But of course, we're just speaking about those, those jargon terms that we Christians know, that we throw around, that's sort of part of the cultural ethos of being a churched person in a churched culture. And Christianese is dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous partly because of the confusion it can give to our neighbors who are not churched, right? So when we throw around words that they have perhaps never uh, encountered before, it can add a lot of confusion for them. Traveling mercies, that's one. What, what do we mean when we say traveling mercies? I'm not exactly sure. I think, I think I know, but I'm not quite sure. Or how about this one? Washed in the blood. How does that sound if you've never been to church before? Or maybe, and perhaps most frequently, getting saved. That's one we use a lot. And our non-Christian neighbors probably have no idea what we're talking about. Or they have a concept they got from other Christians a long time ago, which may or may not conform to the word of God. But part of the danger of Christianese is not just how it impacts our unchurched friends. It's actually how it impacts us. Because it's entirely possible for us also to lose track of the meaning of the words that we use and hear all the time. And I bring that up because our passage tonight is packed with gospel phrases which can easily turn into just jargon, just Christianese for us, unless we listen to them really attentively. And there's one word on which our passage hinges that is perhaps the most overused of the passage. But it's also the most important and that's the word grace. So our passage tonight, if you focus in on, your, uh, on the page of your Bible to verses 11 through 14 in Titus chapter 2, begins, for the grace of God has appeared. And really that's the beginning of a sentence. And the period of that sentence doesn't come to the, until the end of verse 14. Zealous for good works. So the subject of the sentence is grace. And all the rest in between... It follows as the predicate of that sentence. So the sentence is all about grace. So why don't we start with defining grace? What in the world is grace? When we use that word so often, we put it on our church sign, when it is the name, in fact, of our church and almost every other Reformed church in the country, what do we mean? Well, the word grace, or charis in Greek, uh, was, was a general term at the time of the New Testament that Greeks would have used in a variety of different ways, but it just means favor or kindness. When someone bestows favor, um, it's a disposition that results in a benefit towards someone else. Have you ever been in that position where, for some reason, someone had a disposition of favor towards you? And that resulted in all kinds of benefits. Grandmas are like that, right? Right? They have a disposition of favor towards their grandchildren that results in benefits. Have you ever been in the position where you knew that those benefits were completely undeserved and unreturnable? Where that favor or kindness was shown to you and you knew it had nothing to do with you? 
This has been my experience, my family's experience at Grace Baptist Church. Uh, You as a church family, and I know others would speak to this too, have shown benefit, favor, kindness that we can never repay, that we never deserved. And that's a picture of the grace of God that we find in our passage. So when we're not just speaking about grace, but we're speaking about the grace of God, we're always speaking about the undeserved kind. It's possible to have favor that's deserved, favor that's earned, kindness that's earned by a previous kindness. But when we're talking about the grace of God, it's always a kindness that's shown to people who don't deserve it because the whole world is lost in sin. All of us are rebels against this God of grace, and so if he chooses to show favor or kindness, it's going to be undeserved, it's going to be unreturnable. You and I, when it comes to this relationship, are the rebels... And so the grace of God is always unmerited. So here's the question that we're going to attack tonight. When God turns his favor towards sinners, like you, like me, what happens? When God chooses to show kindness to human beings, to a whole human race, in fact, lost in sin, what does he do? What happens to you when God aims his favor his kindness in your direction. And that's what this passage addresses. The answer to that question is massive. It's big. It's full. It stretches from the beginning of history to its end. And it takes over the entirety of a person's existence. It's because grace is so big, so full, so life-consuming, that there's such a thing as those Christian instructions in the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. So I'm going to rely tonight on the metaphor of a building. The grace of God is like a building. There's an entranceway, then there's the house itself, and one day we can say that house will become a mansion. And I'm going to make the argument that when we think about the grace of God, our default is to think about the entranceway. But God has in view the entire building. And I want to let this passage open our thinking about God's grace to expand and include the entirety of it. The whole building, not just the entranceway. But let's start with the entranceway. And if you're taking notes, my points will simply be the entranceway. That's verse 11. The house. That's verse 12 and verse 14. And then the mansion. We'll skip back to verse 13 to conclude. So the entranceway. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I want you to note that this verse starts in the past tense. For the Greek nerds, it's an aorist. The grace of God has appeared. It's saying that at a point in time, at a point in history, something showed up. Something became visible. Something appeared. The grace, the grace of God. It appeared in history at a particular point in time. So the question is when? At what point in time is Paul speaking of when he writes to Titus that the grace of God appeared? Well, the word appeared is the Greek word epiphino, which is where we get the word epiphany. And if you've ever been in a church that celebrated the liturgical calendar, you know what epiphany celebrates. 
It, it celebrates the time when Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, is made manifest to the world. He's presented to the world with the coming of the Magi, these kings who bowed before him and recognized his lordship. And that's exactly right. Because the appearance of grace that Paul is talking about is specifically and only the first coming of Christ. So when you see that in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, I don't think it's talking about the moment of your conversion. It's talking about the coming of Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father for you. That historical event at a historical place in time. If you want to talk about how God shows kindness, grace, to humanity, you've got to start by talking about a Galilean Jew. That's what Paul has in mind. So here's the question. If that's what Paul has in mind, is that where God's grace started? Did Jesus, or I'm sorry, did God the Father start showing grace to humanity when Jesus came to earth? Well, I think it's worth looking uh, one epistle over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And as we read verses 9 and 10, I want you to pay attention for the word grace. And I want you to pay attention for the word appeared. Epiphano. Epiphany. Here it is. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Kindness. Favor. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So do you see the timeline? Grace began before the ages. God set his purpose to save humanity before the ages began. In fact, God set his love... On particular people who would be his called out peculiar people from before the ages began. So that grace was not new when Jesus showed up. But it's at that moment in history that it became visible, obvious, apparent, declared to the entire human race. God's purpose to show kindness to sinful human beings started before we had ever sinned with a plan for how he would redeem us. But that kindness of God became a visible reality, a historical reality, when Jesus showed up on earth through his saving life and death and resurrection. And what did that appearance accomplish? How does that bring God's favor into view? And the answer is, of course, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection bought salvation for all people. Back to Titus chapter 2.11. I want you to notice that these two words, uh, grace and appeared, come up again in Titus chapter 3. So we're tracking with Paul's thinking by noting the words that he uses repeatedly. So we've been in Titus chapter 2, we look back at 2 Timothy, now let's go back to the book of Titus, but in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, epiphany, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, for sake of time, let's pull those three passages together to say this. In the coming of Jesus at a point in time in history, the eternal plan of God to redeem a people for himself becomes obvious. It becomes visible. It becomes visible because in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, death is abolished and eternal life is made available to anyone who believes in him. That's salvation. That's what his first appearance accomplished. Note the word in Titus chapter 3, verse 17, justified. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Because Jesus came to earth, because he died for sin and rose to bring eternal life to all his people, you can be justified. And that's the first impact that grace has on the new believer's life. When you put your faith in Christ, you are immediately and simultaneously justified. That means there's a legal transition that happens when you believe in Jesus. Your sentence of death is commuted and you become an inheritor of eternal life. That is the entranceway of grace. When we repent and when we believe, we are immediately justified. We are legally and eternally reconciled to God. Our sin is blotted out. It's taken as far away from us as the east is from the west. That's the entranceway. And that happens because of a Galilean Jew 2,000 years ago. So, while we're discussing the entranceway and before we leave verse 11, I want you to note one more thing. And that that is that Paul says this grace that appeared in Christ, which brings justification, salvation, is for all people. I call that the open door in the entranceway. Look back. Titus 2, 1 through 10. That's all people. Old men, young men, old women, young women, even slaves. Why did Paul highlight slaves in Titus chapter 2? Because he wants us to know that it really is for all people. It doesn't matter what class you come from. It doesn't matter what background, what ethnicity, it's for you. That was true in Paul's day and that's true today. This salvation is for anyone, and this salvation is for everyone who comes to Jesus, regardless of your gender, your age, your race, your social status, your sexual orientation. The entranceway is open. Grace for all people. A mansion of God's kindness is waiting for you, so come on in. Repent of your sin. Believe in the Jesus who came in history to show the grace of God for you. So much for the entranceway. As we move into verse 12, there's actually a a rather abrupt transition. We move from all people, the end of verse 11, to the word us, in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, etc. So who's the us? Well, the us is everyone who has come into the entranceway. Everyone who has believed in Jesus. Now Paul is talking to those who are actually in the house. You've repented. You've believed. You've been justified. 
You're forgiven. Your eternal condemnation has been laid on Jesus and you will never see it again. You've been promised eternal life when you deserved eternal death. What more could you want? A lot more, it turns out. Because there's more to grace than the entranceway. And that's where Paul is going in verse 12. God wants something more for you than just your justification. God's grace is about the rescue of all of you for himself. Justification and forgiveness are just the entranceway. No recipient of God's favor stays in the entranceway. The grace of God has a continuing impact in the believer's life. Verse 12. It trains us. So, you're a believer. You've come through the entranceway. And now the grace of God is going to train you. Well, what does it train you to do? Let's note the structure here. There's a positive, or I'm sorry, there's a negative and a positive to the training that grace works in the believer's life. The negative, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace trains you to do that. The positive, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So let's briefly look at the negative and look at the positive. This is what grace is training believers to do. When we see the word renounce in verse 12, it's as strong as it sounds. It means to say no to, to put off. So in order to live the Christian life, we are going to have to say no to things. That's what Paul is saying. What do you need to say no to? Well, ungodliness or godlessness It's disregard for our holy God and his holy character. So we are to say no to patterns of thought and behavior that show disregard for God's holiness. What are the things in my life, what are the things in your life that treat God's holiness lightly? Those are the things to say no to. And then worldly desires or worldly passions, those are the things that compete for our affections that pull our love away from Jesus. Whatever those things are in your life and mine, they qualify as a worldly passion. If it pulls your heart away from your holy, beloved Christ, it's worldly. That's what worldly means in the New Testament. And we're called to say no. But positively, we're called to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. This word self-controlled has already come up four times in chapter two alone. In those demographic instructions, every group, more or less, is instructed to be self-controlled. So there's discipline to the Christian life. Many commentators point out that this wording suggests the self-controlled is about how I relate to myself. The next word, upright, is about how I relate to other people. We could also translate it righteous or just. It's relating to my fellow man in a way that reflects the authority, the justice of God who rules both of us. And then godly is the vertical orientation. Not just myself, not just fellow man, but how do I relate to God? And it simply means that our heart is turned Godward with a desire to please him. So, if you're a Christian... You come through the entranceway of justification. 
Paul is saying that you necessarily keep moving. You do not stay there. The grace of God at work in you pulls you on into the house where you will be trained progressively over time to say no to some things and to say yes to others. So I want to address two objections to that assertion. Number one, this claim that we have to say no to some things and say yes to other things if we're going to live the Christian life sounds like legalism. I want you to note something that is not really visible in most of our English translations. And that is that the no section, the negative, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, is actually grammatically subordinate to the positive, the living, a self-controlled, righteous, and godly life. In other words, it's like it says, grace trains us so that, in parentheses, having renounced ungodliness and worldly passions, we might live self-controlled, righteous, and godly. In other words, the whole purpose of the no is the yes. That's the distinction between legalism and gospel living. Christianity will tell you to say no to some things. But legalism is saying no for the purpose of saying no. The gospel calls us to say no for the sake of a far greater yes. So that's my first response to the objection that this sounds like legalism. But the second objection, and the one that I think hits home for me more, is that this sounds too hard. And if that's your response, I certainly sympathize. This whole self-discipline, godly life, all the things that we must say no to, does sound hard. The word training sounds hard. Well, the word training is the Greek word for child training. It comes up in Hebrews chapter 12, for instance, where we're told that uh, God is a father who disciplines his children, just as parents discipline their children. That word for discipline is the same word. It's child training. And that's really important because child training is not merely passing on information. It's not classroom education. In other words, grace doesn't just tutor us to inform us of some things and to inform us not to do other things. Grace actually takes our hand like the parent takes the child's hand. To guide us into a new way of living. When God's favor is on you, his power holds your hand as you walk into this new life. This new lifestyle that he has for you. And that's his promise to you. It's not just that he will tell you what you ought to do. It's that he will take your hand and enable you to do it. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation. Sound like training? With fear and trembling. Sound hard? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or we might translate that, both the willing and the doing. So believer, it's not just that God's good news, that his grace obligates you to a new kind of life. It's that it enables you to that new kind of life. 
The grace of God revealed in Jesus gives you the ought to, but it also gives you the want to and the able to. And that's because Jesus bought the whole thing, the whole package. Not just your justification, but your sanctification. Jesus actually bought it for you, the whole house. He didn't just buy the entranceway. He died to give you a whole new life. And that includes the power to live it. So let's skip verse 13. We'll come back to it. And look at verse 14, which makes this assertion. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So just as verse 12 had a negative and a positive, a say no and a say yes, so verse 14 has a negative and a positive. Do you see it? Jesus gave himself, think a bloody Roman cross 2,000 years ago, he gave himself on that cross to redeem you from, that's the negative, and to redeem you for, or purify you for. That's the positive. You see that? And that corresponds very closely to what we saw in chapter 12, the saying no and the saying yes. So what did he redeem you from? Well, the passage says he redeemed us from all lawlessness. And by the way, the word redeem there could also be very legitimately translated ransom. It's a purchase. So he purchased you from something. What did he purchase you from? All lawlessness. Now I want you to note that Paul is not in this verse saying he purchased you from the guilt of law breaking. That's true. And we could look back to verse 11 and other passages for that. But in verse 14, Paul is saying that God bought you, that Christ bought you from the lawless living itself, from the lifestyle. You are not just saved from the consequences of your lifestyle. You are saved from the lifestyle itself. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not just from the consequences, but from the ways of living themselves. Jesus died to buy you from them. That's the from, the negative. What's the for, the positive? To purify for himself. A people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So there's really two fours. What are you saved for? Number one, himself. Jesus bought you, Jesus bought me, so that we would be set apart to him in every corner of our life, distinctively his, a people for his own possession. And and we could translate that a special people or even a chosen people. Those would be legitimate ways of rendering that phrase. Jesus bought you not just to get you out of the eternal jail called hell, but so that you could be his own in every way, in every aspect of your life, in the present, in this present age, as Paul said, exclusively his. There's, it's not explicit here, but there really is a sense of the bride and the bridegroom, isn't there? 
the bought to be his own. He doesn't want to share your heart with anyone, and he won't. He bought you to be exclusively his own. But being exclusively his own actually means good works. So he bought you for good works. And what are good works? Well, in the theology of the Bible, good works are the reflection of his own character. It's not random. It's not a particular set of behaviors that God decided to approve and ask you to do if you're going to be his own. No, it's his own character that he wants you to reflect back to him. That's our memory verse, Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. He purifies you so that you'll be like him. And it's not just the behaviors, the external actions, the commandment keepings that he's after. It's not just a people who do good works. It's a people who are what? Zealous for those good works. Or one commentator I read said, zesty for good works. Jesus wants not just your behaviors, but your heart. And he died to buy it. This is the glorious yes of the Christian life. It's being passionate about being like the Savior because we love him and we love his character and we want to reflect it back to him for his own glory. God's favor is not just a get-out-of-jail-free get card saving us from hell. It's so much more than that. Jesus didn't just purchase the entranceway. He purchased the whole house, your new life, as his very own prized possession. And that is the why behind all of the lifestyle instructions of the Bible. Between all of those imperatives, those commands of how you ought to live and how you ought not to live, the glorious why behind it is that Jesus has bought all of you for him. And so Titus is saying, now live into it. The whole house is yours. It's already purchased. Walk on in. Embrace it. In fact, if you've really entered the entranceway, if you've really been justified, you can't stay in the entranceway. You will continue moving on in into the new life that God has called you to. And I also want to clarify that you can't live in the rest of the house unless you come through the entranceway. There is no Christian living apart from justification. There is no new life apart from the resurrection that only Jesus can give you. You can't be alive unless he makes you so. You can't experience the grace of God to change you until you've experienced the grace of God that brings you from your hellbound condition into, into eternal life. It is not easy living in the house of grace in the here and now. This training program is hard, but it is worth it because one day that house will turn into a mansion. That's verse 13. God's purpose is not just to make you new and give you a new life, in him, but it's that that life will be caught up with him in glory, in splendor. The king will return. The house will be his castle eternally. 
verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you notice the word appearing yet again? This is the second appearing in this particular passage. Verse 11 was the appearing of Jesus in his incarnation 2,000 years ago. And now we have another appearing. Another moment in history where God's grace will show up visibly. But this one we are waiting for. So as Christians, we live between the appearings. We don't visibly see the grace of God now. It's not incarnate here on earth. But we live between two such appearings, two such moments in history where God's grace was tangible and where it will be tangible in the person of Christ on earth. The first advent, the second advent. And this is what Paul calls our hope, our blessed hope. It's the moment we look toward. And when Paul says blessed, he just means happy. It's a hope that makes you happy if you really believe it. And that is the moment that makes sense of all of the self-control, all of the saying no, all of the painful training. It's very much like a bride or groom keeping himself, herself for the other, for the wedding day. It's self-discipline, it's abstinence, but it's a happy self-discipline because the spouse is worth it. That is why we say no to some things and say yes to others. We are waiting for our bridegroom, and he's worth it. I got to see a good illustration of waiting a couple of nights ago. Uh, Josh, Ray, and Joe and I watched a film called Their Finest Hours, and it's about a uh, Coast Guard rescue in 1952. It's a a real historical event. Uh, Very daring, kind of unprecedented rescue off the shores of Massachusetts. The hero of that story was a man named Bernie Weber, a young Coast Guardman, and his girlfriend uh, was a woman named Miriam. He would indeed marry her, and I think they lived happily for 58 years. But at the time of the rescue, uh, they were engaged, and the film shows Miriam waiting, waiting for Bernie's return, hour after hour, with very little contact from him as he's out on a stormy ocean with 70-foot waves in a 36-foot vessel. And it's intense. She's scanning. She's standing there on the stormy shore, watching, waiting, looking for the light of his little vessel to head back to the shore. There's an intensity about our waiting, too. But there's also a difference. Because Miriam did not know if Bernie would return. But believer, you know your Jesus is coming back. Your Jesus will return, and that's a happy hope. It's a bet you won't lose. So we're eager, but we're not anxious. If he came the first time, he will surely come the second. If he was willing to give himself for you in his life and his death and his resurrection, then he will surely come again for you, and he is worth the wait. So let me briefly give you a couple of points of application. Number one, this eager expectation, this hope, this grace 
is for all who believe in Jesus Christ, to all, for all who turn from their sin, to all who come through that entranceway. And if you have not come, it's not yet yours. And so I long for you that you would come. I long. If you are here and you've heard the gospel all your life, if you're one of our youth whom I love, and you've heard the gospel even from me time and time again, my prayer for you, my longing for you, is that you would come on in. There's grace for you. And it's not just a stamp of approval that gets you out of hell. It's a whole new life. It's a rich life. It's a hard life. But it's a good life as you wait for the return of our king. So come. And then when you come, don't stay in the entranceway. Brothers and sisters, saying no is part of Christian obedience. Saying yes to other things is part of Christian obedience. That's the call of Christ. But it's also what he's bought. He bought the power to live that new calling out. There are times in our Christian lives where we don't believe it's possible. Where we face things that are so hard to say no to. And I've been there. That we give up hope that the saying no can ever happen. Where we believe that we are stuck with this for the rest of our lives. And the promise of scripture is that Jesus came to redeem you from that. Not just from its consequence, but from the lifestyle itself. He bought you from it. And the first step to living in the power he already has given you is to believe that he's really given it. Take him at his word and then say no this time. And then say yes to him. And no and yes and no and yes as you walk forward in Christian obedience. There will be sufficient grace to change. Take heart. And finally, brothers and sisters, and this is the application that is hardest for me. We're called to wait, to be expectant, to be eager for our Lord's return. And in our daily lives, it does not feel that that return is real. But his coming the first time was real. You and I have staked our whole existence upon the fact that at a moment in history, this Galilean Jew who was the Son of God died and rose again. And if you're willing to stake your existence on his first coming, let us stake our hope on his second coming. And let's conclude then with the words that Paul wrote to Timothy. That is a benediction, a promise, a prayer for you and for me. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus.